Well, amen. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Psalms 50. Psalms 50, if we're uh, doing the math, we're about a third of the way through Psalms, our study in Psalms, and uh, just to get you sort of prepared as you find your place. I hope you got some notes with you. What this is going to look like, a little bit different, we're about to slow down in our study of Psalms um, for the next five weeks. And Psalms 49, Psalms 50, Psalms 51 is connected together for a reason. And so we're going to slow down to almost a stop when we hit Psalms 51. And you'll see how it's connected, uh, hopefully, today through the message. Next week, we're going to look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So if you begin to study along with us in our study of Psalms, that's the story behind Psalms 51. And so if you've got your template, I hope you get one on the way on the way out this morning, you'll notice the question is, what is the historical background of a psalm? And some we have it and some we don't. Psalms 51, next week, we have the background for. And so next week, we're basically going to look at the answer to that question. And then we're going to start studying Psalms 51, just looking at a couple verses at a time. And I'm excited about that. Today is an important message with that theme. And so stand with me. I just want to get us started this morning as we stand to our feet. I'm going to read the first six verses of Psalms 50, and then we'll, we'll look through the rest as we, as we go. This is a psalm of Asaph. Psalms 50, verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion... The perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Let's pray. Lord, we hear Your message this morning loud and clear. That You are the judge of Your people. So Lord, we are Your people who have gathered together in your name to worship you. And so now, Lord, we desire to hear your words to us. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So back to the beginning. We don't know the historical context of that, but to a degree we do. Um, this is a song of Asaph. You see that up in the heading. He was one of three choir leaders he didn't only led the Levitical choir. Yes, the Old Testament had choir. It was sing. These are its leaders. Not only that, but they were the leader of Israel's corporate worship. The corporate worship of God's people has always had music. And so the historical background to the degree that we have it is that this psalm is part of the songbook of the people of God. That they would regularly gather together and worship through singing and this was one of the songs. So what's the setting? The setting is bound up in that, isn't it? Then this 
psalm is not written to the nations today. We're not speaking to the pagans. We're not speaking to those who do not follow Christ. It is speaking to the people of God. Those who had entered into the covenant with God. His very people. That's who it's to. What's the concern? Because there is a concern in this psalm. This is a, this is a warning. A lot of warning in here. I don't know if you watch the news. I don't sit in front of the TV and watch the news. I, I like to look at it on, online where I can scroll through and read what I need to, slow down, speed up. I don't watch this program. I don't know if you do. It's called The Bachelorette. I just happened to saw it on the news feed and said these two people that was on this program were both professing Christians. And that naturally caught my attention. I clicked on it and read it. The conversation would have been just passing off for me if it wouldn't have been both of these folks supposed to be following Christ. And, and so the, the one man was basically saying, asking the girl in this little dramatic little encounter that they were on, what about keeping the marriage bed pure? Let's talk about that. He believed that the marriage bed should be kept pure, and apparently she did not. <laughs> that was the conversation. Here's what she said to this little encounter. I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. It's all washed. And if the Lord doesn't judge me and it's all forgiven, then no man, woman can judge me. And at the scene closed with, her, with him driving away and her politely showing him that he is number one. I guess that was forgiven and washed too. That's the concern. It's not just a concern with the people of God in the Old Testament. It's a concern today that that woman is a professed follower of Jesus Christ. And this is how she believes. Many professing believers, you see, want a God who does not judge nor command and who desperately needs me to worship Him. I want you to see something in the New Testament, so turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Remember Paul's writing to Timothy, a pastor, giving him some warnings and encouragements. Listen to what he says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this. That in the last days there will be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Notice this. Having the appearance of godliness. That word appearance means form. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Look at the next sentence. Avoid such people. The concern today, the sobering reality of this psalm, is that it is to the people of God. It is not speaking to people out there. It's speaking to us. To those that might be in the body of Christ, that may be thinking and believing and living Inside the community of faith. With the wrong understanding of God. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said. 
He calls this type of professing Christian the formal Christian. Quoting, They regularly attend worship. They regularly go to the Lord's table. But they never get any further. They know nothing of true heartfelt Christianity. They are not familiar with scriptures and take no delight in reading them. They do not separate themselves from the ways of the world. They draw no distinction between godliness and ungodliness in their friendships or matrimonial alliances. They, they care little or nothing for the distinctive doctrines of the gospel. They appear utterly indifferent as to what they hear preached. You may be in their presence for weeks, and from what you hear or see... On any weekday, you might easily assume that they were atheists. What can be said about these people? They clearly profess to be Christians, and yet there is neither a heart nor life in their Christianity. There is but one thing to say about them. They are formal Christians. Their religion is only a form. This is the concern inside the people of God. And to this, Psalms 50 speaks. And what it does is Asaph is portraying through music a future judgment. A judgment where there is a, a judgment scene. There is a judge. There are witnesses and there are people being judged. This is the scene. Look at verse 1. The righteous judge speaks and summons and what he does first is God identifies himself. Verse 1. The mighty one God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Interesting, if you've got your template, if you begin to train yourself to look at that and read through some of those questions. One of the questions is, notice some distinctions, notice repeated things, notice those kinds of things and just write them down. Well, what I want you to notice this morning is what we call the tricolon. Just, all you got to do is look at the verse numbers and see some of the verses have three lines and some of them have two. The three line, the tricolon is important. And we see that in verse 1. I'll point them out as we go this morning. The mighty one, God, the Lord. We see God identifying himself threefold way. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The, the sovereign creator of the universe is the covenant people of God, the Lord. Look down at verse 6. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. So, your pastor talking to himself this week. I am not the judge this morning. I am not supposed to come across in a message as if I am the one that's judging. I am not. Pastors and the prophets of old are simply given the word to foretell. And they are held accountable as the first to be judged that they speak the truth and they speak it in love. I am not the judge, but look at verse 6 this morning. God is. He is the judge. 2 Corinthians 5.10. I'm not sure if that's in your notes, but just write that down. We know this text, or we should. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that letter was written to the church. The righteous judge identifies himself. And then the righteous judge comes in verse 2 and 3. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. And so we've studied this in Zion. What does it mean when 
This writing uses Zion. Remember, Jerusalem was the place where God's presence dwelled with his people. It was the place of presence. It was the place of power. It was the place of comfort for his people. This is where judgment comes from. Don't try to find it. Habakkuk's a little bit hard to find. Habakkuk 2.20 just says this. Just listen. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That's sort of the scene. The judgment scene. The judge identifies himself. Everyone else is silent. There's a soberness to this. He speaks from Mount Zion. The place of power. The place of his presence. The nature of his coming is in verse 3. It is unmistakable. There's no hiding or escaping. This pincher of both fire and a tempest. The tempest simply means like a whirlwind. Like a hurricane. He comes when he, when he chooses to judge. He comes in a fire and as if, if it does not get you going, coming, it'll get you going. It'll get you on the front side or the back side. This is a picture of God's active justice and His inescapable power. And think about this for a minute. Most Psalms, most Psalms are about God's people waiting for deliverance. They're surrounded by their enemies. Their enemies are going to kill them and they're calling out to the Lord. And God shows up and delivers them from their enemies. Here, it's almost unexpected. As God gathers the heavens and the earth. Look at verse 4. The righteous judge calls everyone, all the world. Think of this scene. And then he looks at his own. That's the unexpected nature. They would have thought he may judge the nations. Instead, he looks at his people. Look at verse 4 and 5. He calls heavens and earth above. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth. That he may judge his people. Look, he identifies his people. Look at verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones. Who made a covenant with me by sacrifice? We see here that God's people have a covenant responsibility. It is to this He calls them account to. And He calls the whole nations to listen as He judges His own. We may think this is simply, oh, this is some of that Old Testament stuff. First Peter. First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says this. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Listen, for God to judge his people, it's grace. It's grace this morning that we have this word. And we must receive it as such. God loves us. And so he calls his people to account. And he speaks with love to his people. It's not a mad God. This is not an angry God. This is a just God who loves his people. Quote, it was a great temptation in the past, as it is now, to believe mistakenly that everything was in order between God and them. God will order everything on earth according with His will. 
I have been just sobered as I have told the guys and leadership team earlier. I, I was listening to a group of guys as they talked about ministry and vision and church planning and all these wonderful things that I love and enjoy and was just, you know, gaining so much from it and then realized this was like 2012 and half the men on the panel have failed in their ministry since then. From 2012 to now. It's a sobering reality. Mega pastors with mega ministries and secret sin. And God in His grace bringing that sin to the surface. It's grace. So the righteous judge graciously warns and commands His people. This is the main part of the message. The main part of the Psalms. Verses 7 to 21 is God, the judge, warning. Notice verse 7. Another tricolon, another three line. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. There's two foundations of judgment here that he's doing. One is the Shema. The other is the Decalogue. The Shema simply is very, still today is important, not only for Christians, but also for Jewish people. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. They pray that regularly. This is our understanding of who God is. And then the commandments. We're going to see that in a minute. His judgments based off of who He is and what He's commanded. This is what He calls the people to account with. And here's what He says to start with. This is helpful. Here's what's not wrong. Here's what's not wrong. Look at verse 8. Here's what's not wrong with your worship. Here's what's not wrong with your life. It's not wrong. Verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. It's not like you're not worshiping. You're coming. You're offering the sacrifices. They didn't get to choose how they worshiped. It was prescribed. And they were doing it. That's, that was what he, that's what he's saying. What's not wrong with your worship? It's not like you're not offering sacrifices. It's not like you're not coming and gathering together. You are. This is, not, this is, this is important. Turn with me to Leviticus 7. This is not talking about atonement offerings. That's not what he's speaking about here. He's speaking most likely about the dedication offering. Turn with me to Leviticus 7. I just want you to see an important point. Because some of this, if you don't understand some of the Old Testament, it's really hard to grab some of the connections. Leviticus 7. He's speaking there. There wasn't just one offering. That's what, I'm, that's what we need to learn about the Old Testament. They're, they had the burnt offering. They had the atonement offerings to atone for their sin and to remove penalty and judgment and wrath and those kinds of things. Absolutely. But then they had dedication offering. They had thanksgiving offerings. Here we hear it, see it described. Verse 12, Leviticus 7. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he should offer with thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves Mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. Now all of this is just steeped with, with meaning and symbolism. I just want you to notice the, the word unleavened. You see that? They're thanksgiving arson. Leaven in the Bible means sin. means evil. It means that which lies under the surface and permeates and grows 
And, and so we see Christ being the bread of life, remembering the Passover of unleavened bread. Le- leaven is evil. Unleavened means purity. It means that they are, after their sins are forgiven, they come to bring a thanksgiving offering. And they come in purity. In holiness. To offer thanksgiving and to dedicate themselves to the Lord. That's, this is what this, this is in reference to. And here's what he's saying. You're, you're coming and offering a thanksgiving offering. You are. You're, you're bringing that. I'm not criticizing that. I'm not correcting that. So what's the warning? It's twofold. One is what I want to call needy worship. Needy worship. We could call this the danger of formalism. We don't use that word much anymore. Needy worship. What is it? What's wrong with my worship, God? That's our question. So I'm bringing it. What's, what's the big deal? I mean, I'm here today, right? What's wrong? God could say it this way. You're worshiping me, but you are insulting me with your worship. That's, that's the sobering warning today. That we could actually be worshiping in form and be insulting the Lord that we desire to worship. How can that happen? The divine charge is there is some wrong assumptions being made about the Almighty. The assumptions, the heart's motivation. And what it is, is God needs. God needs. This is the wrong assumption. That we come to worship with any kind of understanding that God is somehow needy. This is what he's getting to when he gets to verse 9. If you don't understand, it could be a little bit confusing. The people imagined that God was in need when they brought their sacrifices. That somehow their sacrifices met a need in God. He says in verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. So we just got through. You're bringing them. There's nothing wrong with you bringing your sacrifices. Here's what he's saying. I'm not a needy guy that, that sneaks over to the Bucktons because God is in need and takes some of their stuff from them. Because he's got, in other words, there's a false assumption that God is either needy or greedy. We come to this with worship. This is what he's saying. And understand this. Behind every wrong assumption about God, there is usually underneath the table, and I won't. Wrong assumptions. You see, I understand a little bit of this. I'm thinking, I have got back issues. I've had a couple back surgeries years ago. And because I've got back issues, it creates a deficiency in me. You know? Me and, I think it was Mike, was carrying some of this stuff out for the yard sale yesterday. By the way, $684 that gets to help people go on the, go on the mission. And so that's exciting. But me and Mike, see, didn't even have to say it to each other. We went to carry one of those big old speakers out there. And he looked at me and I looked at him. And we grabbed both sides and carried it out together. <laughs> Why? Because me and Mike have some deficiency in our life and we know it. <laughs> if I carry that out on my own, I'm going to have to pay for it later. It is dangerous to begin to ascribe that to God. As if He is somehow deficient, needy, and needs us to carry our side. That's what they're bringing. You see, there's two false assumptions here, and they're very important. One is He needs our worship. God's so needy, He needs to go into our house and pull pull our stuff, our animals, our stock. 
Because he is deficient in and of himself. There's another dangerous one. I hear it all the time. It was alive and well then as it is now. False assurance number false assumption number two. Worship appeases God's wrath. I come here because God's mad at me because I messed up last week. This is exactly what the pagans did. Didn't they? They came and offered their sacrifice to appease the gods because the gods were mad at them. And if they didn't get the God not mad at them, then they wouldn't have children. Their crops wouldn't grow and they wouldn't prosper. It is, it is a blasphemy to the Almighty to come to worship thinking that somehow we serve a mad God and we're just trying to satisfy Him so He won't rob me of my blessings. This is what's going on here amongst the people of God who want to worship Him. In other words, be warned today, brothers and sisters, because we all have a tendency to slide in a particular direction together. And we need to remember, what assumptions am I making about the Almighty when I gather? What assumptions am I making when I get up in the morning to study and to pray? He corrects it in verse 10 to 13. You see that? God corrects false assumptions. It's just sobering. Remember your, remember your template. Look for repeated words. So let's just pull them out as we study. I'm going to accent them. Verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? You see that sobering God correcting false assumptions about himself? I am not needy. And by the way, do you bring your sacrifices because I'm, my, my stomach's empty, I'm hungry, and I need something to drink? As if I am, God as spirit actually eats the sacrifices and drinks the blood. He said, I don't need anything. And if I did, here's what he says. If I needed something, I wouldn't ask you. I'd go and pull out of my infinite treasury. By the way, it's all mine. <laughs> Isn't that helpful to know we serve a God that owns everything? It's a good correction. I needed that this week. It's mine. Worship, my worship, your worship is not based on God's need or my self-centered desire to appease Him in order to keep receiving His blessings. Either one insults God in our worship. Listen to Sam Storm, helpful. Our worship on Sunday morning does not meet a need in God. He meets a need in us. We don't bring anything to God in corporate worship that He does not already have. Nothing except our need for Him. So let me ask you a question. That's pretty direct, pretty straightforward. But is that grace? Is that grace? For God to say that about Himself, for that to warn us, is that not grace? Let me ask you something. Who's your best friend in the world, and how do you know they're your best friend? People call people best friends because you've known them a couple weeks. I tell you how you know a best friend. Because at some point in that life, that friend has told you something you didn't want to hear because they loved you enough to speak it. And that's how you know they're a good friend. Some of us are lonely because we walk away from our good friends and speak us the truth. God speaks the truth because He loves us. 
The first warning, He wants us to desire to worship and obey Him. But he's, He looks even sterner. There's another group of people inside the covenant people of God. And now, the judge looks even sterner at a particular group of people. And listen, He calls them wicked. The righteous judge warns the wicked. We know the wicked by another name. If you read the New Testament a lot, we would call them the hypocrites. Remember the hypocrites? Jesus had the sterner, the sharpest things to say. Not because he hated the hypocrites, but because he loved them. They were the most religious of the day. And they were masquerading under, as the covenant people of God. While secretly, they hated the commands of God. These were the formal Christians that J.C. Ryle talked about. Look at it, verse 16. By the way, notice something. Verse 16 has how many lines? Three. So a little pause button in the sermon. You notice my points have lined up with the tricolons? It's a little, little hint to understanding how you lay this out if you were teaching this lesson. There's a warning. There's a distinction here. We see it in verse 16. But to the wicked, God says. Now, he's not looking outside at the nations here. It's still directed to, toward the people of God. What right, listen, who he's talking to. What right have you to recite my statutes? You see who he's not talking to? He's not speaking to the people who don't have the statutes. He's speaking to God's people. What right do you have to, to recite my statutes or take my covenant in your lips? He's speaking to the, the faithless. The, they're, they're the people who's standing around going, God's about to bless us. He's about to get you. About to bless us. It, they're, they're the confident. They've gathered together. They're in the gathering. He has the sternest things to say to them. What's the, what's the charge? What's the problem? Look at verse 17. For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. How many people like peanuts? I, if, if, hey, if I'm on vacation and I don't have a bag of salted in the shell peanuts, I haven't really had a vacation. If my wife brings those, I know it's like, it can rain all week. We got this big bag of peanuts, everything's going to be okay. But what do you do with the holes? You eat your peanuts, you eat the peanuts, you throw the holes, just, you just sling them. This is the picture here. The picture here. The picture here is God has given you something that is good and something that is precious and you're not eating it. You're just throwing it over the shoulder. That's the hypocrite. Takes the whole word. What does he mean here? Well, turn with me to Proverbs. If you've got, got your Bible, turn with me to Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs. Turn with me to Proverbs, chapter 1. Proverbs, chapter 1. What are they rejecting? What are they just casting aside? Proverbs 1. Look at verse 2. Proverbs 1, verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. Let the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of a rise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This they give intellectual assent to. 
It's not saying they say, I don't agree with that. They're saying, I do agree with it. Absolutely. Amen, brother. Praise the Lord. That's true. How then do they cast it aside? They cast it aside with their life. You see, the hypocrite enjoys their sin while outwardly agreeing with the commandments. And he uses the commandments. Remember, this is based off who God is. It's also based off his commandments. Look at verses 18 to 20. He's speaking directly to the hypocrite now, toward the formal Christian. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. Verse 19. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your own family. You slander your mother's son. What he's saying. You see what they're saying? The hypocrite loves Jesus, but still loves to sleep around. They love Jesus, but they cheat on their taxes. They love Jesus, but they mistreat their employees. They love Jesus, but they steal from their employer. All the while saying, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. It's a sobering warning. That in the Old Testament, the Decalogue stands in an accusation against them. And for the New Testament, the cross. It stands in accusation against those who agree with the message, but love the sin. If you look at this, he's not saying that they actually commit adultery. Do you see it? He says they love to keep company with them. Hypocrisy says, I'm good as long as I don't participate. He's saying, no, you don't understand. You would say, the hypocrite would say, sex trafficking, that's terrible. I'd never. That's, that's horrendous. But pornography, that's okay. What does it hurt? All the while, singing holy, holy, holy. God says to agree with it and to accept it is to be guilty of it. Sin lies both in the act and in the consent, consent. This is the standard. Been watching a lot of movies on Nazi Germany. I would recommend you, especially if you're young, you really need to watch that. Because there were plenty of people who, who would tell the stories later who simply watched it happen, including the church. There is no such thing as private sin. My sin affects your worship. This is the issue going on with God's people then as it is now. So did God love the Pharisees? Did Jesus love the Pharisees? Oh, yes. Did he speak to them differently than he spoke to the prostitute? Absolutely. Did he speak the truth to both of them? He did. And that is grace. That is grace. There is a sobering warning that's still left for these wicked within the covenant people of God. And it's at the end of verse 21. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, verse 22. You who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. You see, this is covenant language. 
We don't understand this because we don't do covenants this way. But in that day, when you did covenant, you, you cut the covenant, which means there were covenant conditions that people agreed to. And once the covenant was made, the covenant person said, I do, I do. They would cut the covenant. They would take the animal. They would split the animal in half, and the people would walk through the middle of the covenant. The animals divided in half. What were they saying? If I don't keep the covenant, may this happen to me. You remember in the Abrahamic covenant that Abraham did not walk through there. He, was, he, he, he didn't. He was, in a, he was in a trance. God woke, walked through it alone. God's saying, if I do not keep my word, let this happen to me. Here he speaks to those who said of Moses, we will keep it. Look, we will trust him. We will obey him. And he threw blood on the altar and he slung it on the people and he said, you are now under covenant. To this they had, with full knowledge, walked away from. This is what he said. I'm saying this because I love you. If you forget God and violate the covenant, judgment is coming. Question. Do we have a better covenant in Christ? Amen. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. This is an important book because it's written to the church. It's written to Christians. Christians who are suffering and are thinking it might it would just be easier to go back to what is comfortable. Comfortable is always easier. Hebrews ten twenty nine. Speaking to those who are under the new covenant, under the blood of Christ, who are thinking about walking away, he says in verse twenty nine, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified and has outreached the spirit of grace. For we know him who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is that context that God says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is a sobering warning within the body of Christ, that you can be a formal Christian and know not Christ. You can be a formal Christian in profession, but love sin in your own heart. He says you bring it to the table. Good news today. The righteous judge orders the way of the righteous and delivers. Listen, he delivers all who trust him. It's good news today for those without the body of Christ, and those within. Look at verse, back up now. We skip verse 14 and 15. Look at verse 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And you will glorify me. You see the imperatives here? Offer, command. Perform, command. Call, command. What does it mean to offer to God sacrifice of thanksgiving? Verse 14. Perform your vows. What does that mean? The offering and vows were, listen, concrete expressions of their gratefulness and dedication to God. 
They were concrete expressions of their gratefulness and dedication to God. What was the day of trouble? It was their sin. It wasn't the enemy surrounding them in this context. It was where their sin had taken them in their relationship to worshiping and being grateful to their God. Offer to God. Worship's not based on God's need. It's based on our need. It's not based on His deficiency. It's based on our deficiency. We bring it to Him. Our need. And we give Him gratefulness for who He is and what He's done. And in meeting our need and forgiving our sin, He is glorified. That's good news. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. I like that relationship, right? I will bring my need. And you will deliver me and I will give you glory. God graciously makes His promises here. Do you see them? Get verse 23, last verse. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Whether you're a hypocrite or a needy worshiper or outside the covenant, here is the promise. Put your trust in Christ and he will save you. You see the thanksgiving? There's also an ordering of the way. Do you see that second line? Another tricolon. Second line. He orders this. What does that mean? Think about your life over the last two weeks. Because in the last two weeks, we worship all through life. The last two weeks, how much of everything that we have did, have you, have you arranged, have you ordered according to God's Word? That's, that's what he's saying here. What does worship look like? It looks like us bringing our need and showing gratefulness to our God. And it looks like me ordering every aspect of my life around God's Word and His will because that brings Him glory and in that I worship Him. That's what He's saying. We are saved, brothers and sisters, even within the family of God from our sin as we turn to our God in thanksgiving and put our trust afresh and anew in Him. Here's the question this morning. Are you prioritizing thanksgiving in your life? Here's what we know by this psalm. We know this by our experience. Me and you are naturally inclined to drift, to become cynical, become ungrateful people. Being thankful is hard work. <laughs> it's hard work. Just listen to this, Psalms 107:22, And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in song for joy. Our life that we live every day should be full of remembering who Christ is and what he has done. Turn with me and we'll close with this to Hebrews 13. What might this look like to be grateful and arrange and order our lives around our Lord? Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Through Him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. 
And at the same time, verse 16, do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Before we close, can I give you a little secret? The secret of thanksgiving is sacrifice. The secret of thanksgiving. You want to be a grateful person? Then get uncomfortable for your Jesus. That's the secret. I challenge you this year. Plan to go on a mission trip. Plan to get outside your context with the gospel. And I promise you, you will come back more grateful than when you left. And more renewed to follow Christ. Sacrifice in small ways. Do it for Him and do it for His glory. Do it because you love the people that God has given you the privilege of sharing life with. Seek first His kingdom. Let Him take care of the rest. That's worship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the good news. Lord, I just thank You that now we get to just stand up and worship You. But Lord, let this message challenge us that it matters what's going on in my own heart and mind. Oh God, forgive me because I have treated your, your word in times of prayer like an exercise routine or a bad habit that I do when I'm stressed instead of coming to my Jesus who loves me and I love Him and enjoying that time of intimacy together. Thank You that You promised that You will forgive us and that You love us and You love it when we come with You. Not because You are needy, but because You're God. Because you're a father. You are a good, good father. And so, Lord, comfort your people now. Not just now, Lord. But as we stand and sing and as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.